is Annika in Columbia and Maria in Happy Valley. And welcome to the second season of the City of Subdued podcast, Bad Town. So Maria, before we dive into this week's episode of Bad Town, what kind of hot goss do you have this week? Well, a new restaurant, Milano's, opened up in Fairhaven next to the olive oil and vinegar shop. So we'll definitely have to check that out if they set up some outdoor seating. Definitely. I I saw the pictures online and the bar area looks really cool. In other news, traffic will be resuming soon on Holly Street as two lanes will be opened. Uh, This should be a good compromise between the commuters and the restaurants that really value that space. Yeah. The the other lanes will still be used for dining, right? The other it's just one lane? Uh two lanes. So two lanes. Okay. There's like there's one lane and a parking spot that are being used for dining, and then the other two lanes, the one that goes to your house and then the one that turns right will be open. Okay. Yeah, that I mean it, it makes sense. I living in the Columbia neighborhood, it will certainly make things a little bit easier, but I also definitely did not mind taking the long way around if it gives places a chance to stay open safely. Finally, we want to announce our Patreon. While we're not trying to profit off this, um, we would like to make enough money to hire an audio editor who can help us make more and better content. And maybe t-shirts. And maybe t-shirts. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You can find us at patreon.com slash city of subdued podcast. Right now we only have a $5 tier but subscribing subscribing will give you access to bonus content and hopefully other fun things down the line. Find the link on our website or on our social media. Yes, we really appreciate the support. I'm also very excited to hear about this week's story. So this will be your last Bad Town episode for a few weeks. So Maria, what, what are we learning about this week? This week, we are learning about the Long Trial, which isn't as long as it is about a family named Long. Oh, (laughs) that is coming right up on this week's episode of Bad Town. It's Maria, and welcome to Bad Town, where we discuss the darkest and baddest parts of Bellingham and Whatcom County history. We are joined today by Colby and Ren from the Good Time Girls. So what kind of story are you telling me today? So today we've titled our story, For the Love of Moses, Extramarital Murder in New Whatcom. So just a trigger warning for everybody before we um, get into it. This story does include descriptions of domestic violence. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, That said, our story today is about a murder that occurred on Forest Street, which is um, and right next to the where the Majestic Hall is. And this sordid tale sort of involves a whole cast of really messed up folks. So before we get rolling with the story, I want you guys to set the mood a little bit and maybe tell me some details about the time and, of course, the place the story is going to be happening in. Okay, so in 1891, when the story happened, um, Bad Town, 
or Bellingham, was actually two cities at that time, which was Fairhaven and New Whatcom. You probably recognize Fairhaven as our quaint south side neighborhood shopping district. Uh, it was once its own town. And then um, the north side of town was New Whatcom at the time. They were each born of smaller cities who united all to become Bellingham proper in late 1903. But in 1890s, let's go back to that, uh, this was the fourth corner of the continental United States or kind of the last frontier. Our area, we like to say, was colonized by failed 49ers, the miners, not the football team. <laughs> but basically in the early 1850s, you had a bunch of guys showing up trying to uh, look for resources to exploit and a way to make a living. And this was a pretty difficult place to get to. And by the 1890s, you finally had some railroads coming in, connections north and south. And most of the towns on the whole coast were all hoping to be a terminus for a railroad, namely J.J. Hill's Great Northern Railroad which was being built at the time. So there was a lot of um, booming and activity happening in the 1890s, trying to get excited about railroads and increased um, access to the area. So the population really exploded from a few hundred people, you know, who accessed the area largely by boat to being able to come on a train. Um, You had a lot more people coming in, population in the thousands. So, yeah, there would be an economic collapse in 1893, but and the boom would go bust. But at least um, when our story is set, it was prime boomtown o'clock. 1891. Things were pretty wild westy. It was still a very lopsided and masculine single male population. They were the people who showed up first and the women tended to follow. So let's see, the infrastructure of the towns was because of that, largely financed by sin and gin, as we like to say. Basically, there was a thriving system of brothels and saloons that supplied the city with fees and money to pay for things like planked sidewalks or policemen. So it was an interesting time. And it was an interesting time to be a woman, as if there wasn't an interesting time to be a woman. Well, I'm sort of tempted to say that I'd love to take a time machine to go back and visit this. But maybe the way, uh, maybe I wouldn't have such a good time being a lady. (laughs) Yeah, being a lady wasn't... um wasn't so easy. I mean, I think I think if you're a woman in this time, you are really your the ideal is to get married and make a house for somebody and have babies. That's pretty much all you're really meant to do. Women who were single could have a, a job um, and not be looked down upon so much by society. But um, once you were married, you were in the house. And if you were married and you had a job, it looked bad. And it was kind of disgraceful because that meant that the husband isn't making enough money to take care of you and the children. So um, this is when most women are at home. Their whole lives are meant to make their husband comfortable. Um, That includes how the woman herself looks and how the house looks and the kids look. And so, yeah, it was very much based around another person. And your desires and wishes and dreams um, would have been considered selfish at the time. So, yeah, a lot of women got married young, you know, as soon as they left their folks house or were were old enough to take care of another house. I hate the thought of like being an old maid. And I know that if I went back in that time machine, probably be like uh, past my prime as far as finding a husband goes. I'm so into being an old maid. Should we, you know, get rolling with a once upon a time? Yeah, let's do it. So this crime occurred 
on December 2nd, 1891. I'm going to read a little bit from the Weekly World newspaper of Fairhaven at the time. The headline read, murdered both of them. At 8 o'clock Wednesday night, the residents in the vicinity of Forest Street in New Whatcom were startled by five pistol shots fired in rapid succession. Deputy Sheriff Charlotte and Officer Sevier hastened to 1055 Forest Street, the scene of the shooting, and found that David Long had shot and instantly killed his wife. Susan E. Long, and his son-in-law, Norman Humes, both of whom were found lying in a pool of blood at the back door of the house, out of which the murderer had escaped. Officer Sevier, who was the first to arrive at the scene of the shooting, tried to force open the front door, and finding it securely fastened on the inside, ran around to the rear door and heard the murderer as he beat a hasty retreat through the yard at the rear of the house, but was unable to locate him in the darkness. So yeah, it's an exciting description. And it goes on to describe the scene of the crime as described um, by witnesses at the scene and investigators. The shooting took place in a small three-room cottage while Norman Humes and his wife, whose name was Ida, and her mother, his mother-in-law, Susan, were all seated at the supper table in the kitchen. The house was described as very scantily furnished, the front room containing only a bed, two chairs, a trunk, and a sewing machine. The second room, a bed, a wardrobe, a trunk, and a small table. (laughs) Anyway, so while they were all sitting at the table, Long entered the rear door with a revolver in his hand and apparently exclaimed, I'll settle this, and fired five shots in rapid succession, one of which passed through his wife. She was killed instantly. Another struck Humes, his son-in-law, in the top of the head and came out his neck. He was also killed. So Ida, his daughter, the wife of Humes, stepped over the body of her husband and ran out the back door screaming, you've killed my mother. And he supposedly said to her, don't tell anybody, baby. <laughs> and disappeared into the darkness. This is what the newspaper reported. (laughs) Scandalous. I know. So he disappears, and for a while it was thought that Long had drowned himself or took his own life. This happened a lot in these domestic violence kind of situations. But really he had just gone into hiding on Lummi Island. (laughs) And he came out and gave himself up about a week later after he got hungry. So he was charged with murder in the first degree, and the trial commenced the following March, and it was huge news at the time. So this seems way too weird to be like the beginning or the end of this story. Are there more details? Yeah, it gets deep. So we got to start with like who everybody is and where they're from. David is born in 1850 in Illinois. He's 5'6". He's thick set. He has blue eyes, a mustache, of course, because everybody did. And then he was known for carrying a holstered Colt 45. <laughs> and then the wife, Susan Russell Long, who was murdered. And she is born in 1858 in Illinois, making her age 16 when she married David Long in 1874. She was a comely woman who possessed an ugly disposition. Oh, Isn't that that's mean? mean. So she was pretty, but she's kind of a B word. <laughs> and then the daughter, Ida, um, who was born in Missouri in 1876, she was described as a child of little intellect or feeble-minded. And they said 
she looked about 13, even though she was 16 years old. So she was really small. She had a dark olive complexion. And the Fairhaven Herald said that she had, quote, squirrel teeth that were always exposed. And this is the daughter of David Long and the wife of Norman Humes. Her mom was sleeping with her husband. Okay, so then then there's Norman Humes, who is the the lover um, and the husband. I guess we can't say husband, right? Because then you guys get confused that it's long. So Norman Hughes is the wife's lover and and the squirrel teeth, <laughs> feeble-minded daughter's husband. So, um, and he's born in 1870 in Nova Scotia. Um, he's 21 when this happens. He has red hair and he's working at Cornwall Mill. So some accounts say he was sober and industrious young man. And some accounts say that he would frequent saloons and gambling dens. So I'm assuming that probably depended upon your fear of David Long and his Colt 45 at the time of the trial. <laughs> but at any rate, the, the Long family arrived here in Bellingham Bay around 1887 um, from Texas. And David Long has been working there as a cowboy. They came here and bought a piece of property in the Columbia Eldridge neighborhood, which was known at the time as Kieslingville, um, if you're familiar with Kiesling Street in this neighborhood. Um, and so the story goes that the Longs went to a Salvation Army meeting in January of 1891, where the handsome red-headed Norman Hughes was seated behind them. And human, Humes befriended the family um, and began courting the daughter, Ida. But most people guessed he was really into the mother, Susan, um, and obviously she to him. So Susan and Norman essentially used this courtship of Ida as a cover for their love affair. Right. <laughs> and like we said, um, pretty much everyone involved in this case was a mess. Um, <laughs> so there's not really any like shining examples of humanity here, but it was a sensational story. And Ida's testimony during the trial definitely made everyone look bad. Ida was quoted as saying, I thought he came to see me, but found it was mother. Mama would put a white rag out the window when Papa was away. So it was pretty clear from the trial that, yeah, her mom was having an affair with this guy, <laughs> Norman, who she was married to. She also testified to seeing them with their arms around each other and going into rooms and locking the doors, all kinds of um, incriminating evidence that there was definitely an affair going on there. Susan also apparently attempted to poison her husband, David Long, at some point in that year. His coffee and bread he felt was bitter and he became violently ill and he actually took the bread to have it analyzed and all this and actually, after the murders happened, a bottle of strychnine was found in one of her cloaks. So it does seem like she tried to poison her husband. <laughs> but after this poisoning attempt, David Long was taken aside by someone who worked with Norman Hughes. And he was like, hey, dude, I saw a man and a young woman in a compromising position near the Columbia School. And the woman had a red petticoat on. And Long was like, oh, that's my daughter, Ida. She has a red petticoat. So it's not really clear whether it was Ida or Susan. But it seems like right after this, Susan's like, I think Ida's pregnant. I'm taking her to the doctor. And I really think Humes needs to marry her. 
So it seems like Susan and Norman Humes came up with this scheme in which he would knock up Ida, the daughter, and thus have to marry her so they could continue their affair. (laughs) Except Ida wasn't pregnant. But (laughs) Susan still tried to convince him that this marriage needed to happen. David was like, nah, she's too young. I'm not into this. But her wishes prevailed. And they were married on October 15th of 1891. And they moved into the house all together there in Keeslingville. Super awkward. So um, there was an incident that happened shortly after. I think David Long is kind of, you know, a lot of people thought he was naive. And a lot of people saw this happening and thought he was not, you know, really paying close enough attention to the whole situation. But he he was starting to pick up on, okay, this is this is some shenanigans are going on. So at one point, he locks his wife out of the house. He suspects she's with Norman Humes. And Humes actually reported to the newspaper that his father-in-law met him on the train tracks near Squalicum with two shotgun tunnels staring him in the face, asking him where Susan was. But she wasn't with him, at least not at that moment. So Long was really trying to find evidence of this affair. And he actually cut a trapdoor in the floor of the closet and hid in it. But he was making too much noise and his wife caught him. (laughs) So, yeah, right. So there's like all the struggles and trauma going on in the house and arguing. So Norman Humes and Ida, the daughter, who are now married, move out to the house on Forest Street in Seaholm between Maple and Laurel Streets. But not long after, Susan's like, "Okay, bye, I'm leaving you and left David and goes and moves in with them conveniently. Long apparently came regularly and, you know, begged her to come home, but she refused. So he starts spying on them from underneath the Forest Street house. And at one point, he was under there and apparently heard them discussing all going to bed together as a threesome. Oh, no. That's the worst thing I've heard so far. So scandalous. So Ida, the daughter, refused, and he heard Susan threatening to whip her. And that is when he was enraged and burst out and went in and shot everyone but Ida. And afterwards, he reportedly said, Ida, for God's sake, do not tell what I have done. And he took off. Yeah. I feel bad for Ida. Poor girl. Not too pretty. Not too smart. You know. Just a pawn. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so according to the reports, Ida really didn't appear affected much by the whole tragedy. She was just sort of blank. You know, I've been wondering if she was like maybe a little autistic or something. It sounds like that. That makes it so much worse. And so, yeah, like, you know, what Colby was saying, that whole thing about, you know, the, the, the threesome and all of that that he heard from under the porch was all his testimony because everyone else was dead and Ida is clearly not, you know, within her means to kind of tell really what happened. As far as I've seen, she doesn't speak of that. So, but she does say, they they say she told the story of the shooting with an entire lack of emotion and went away with the officer without a sign of regret at parting with her dead mother and husband. So Ida's testimony during the trial really, like Colby said, painted everybody in a bad light. And she says that they were in all kinds of compromising situations. But she says, father was good to mama. I knew all the time she was doing things she ought not to do. But then she also says, 
One day, father told me he had a notion to kill all three of us, but he had made such threats many times before. And since I was a little girl, I have learned to take them as a matter of course. So repeated, you know, obviously emotional abuse happening since she was a little kid. And then she also says mother left him before. He often abused mother and she would show me marks of his cruelty. He accused her of being intimate with my uncle Charlie Long and with two or three others here in town. He accused her of being intimate with a man in Texas where we lived before coming here. He has drawn his revolver several times before, but I did not think he would shoot. So then a lot of, lot of witnesses have, had also testified to seeing black marks um, on Susan where David Long had struck her. And many testified that Long had often threatened to do bodily harm to both his wife and his son-in-law. The day before the murder, he reportedly went to the Hume's house and begged his wife to return and live with him, threatening in case of her continued refusal to shoot them all. So no thought was entertained at the time that he would carry this, his desperate threat into execution as in anger, he had often made similar threats, which he had afterward forgotten. So this is pretty common. And a lot of people, there's a lot of witnesses that say, yeah, I talked to him. He was definitely saying he was going to kill them. Yeah, he was sort of a violent fellow. Obviously, he's known for carrying this Colt 45 on his hip. And Long himself was emotional, though, on the stand when they when they went to um, interrogate him. And he said, breaking down and he was crying and he claimed it was accidental. And when they asked how that could be, he replied, well, God only knows, but that is the way of it. And then he says, now, just think of a mother treating her only child in that way was awful. To think of her committing adultery with her son-in-law and made her only child marry the man to hide her own guilt. They're certainly all unsavory. I, I definitely have to agree with you there. Yeah, this is like a classic, you know, tabloid fodder kind of a trial. Oh, imagine being the neighbors. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It was in every newspaper all over the region and beyond at the time. So this was this was a big, um, juicy, salacious story. I just want to talk a little bit about the dream team of lawyers. <laughs> So David Long hires local lawyer Thomas G. Newman, who is super hot, I got to say, from looking at his photos. He was very handsome. <laughs> so anyway, he hires T.G. Newman, who is this hotshot, um, handsome, wealthy local lawyer. He has this gorgeous house on Knox Avenue. Newman recruits for the, the lawyer team, this guy from Seattle, who's known as Colonel James Hamilton Lewis, sometimes referred to as J. Ham <laughs> or Ham Lewis, also Dude Lewis or Habeas Corpus Lewis. He had a lot of nicknames. All these cool, like, lawyer aliases. I'm just going to call him J. Ham. I love it. <laughs> so, so J. Ham is like a phenomenon of his time. He's described as being really comical in appearance. He had this trademark, like, bushy beard that were, like, Van Dyke-style big whiskers that were not in style at the time. It was considered kind of odd that he had this crazy style. And he also wore a wavy pink toupee. No! This is the guy? <laughs> Lawyer J. Ham. So he also, he made no effort to hide that it was a toupee. He also dyed his whiskers a pinkish color, apparently. He was just sort of this flamboyant dandy. He was known as a clothes horse who wore spats, even though those were out of fashion. Also, you know, bright green tie, matching socks, 
you know, silk handkerchief, that whole bit. And one time he was actually cautioned to tone down his dress to go to this meeting of like laborers. But instead he came in full tails and top hat because that's what he does. Um, So he was from the South. He was actually born in Virginia and raised in Georgia. And after he went through all law school, he came to Washington in 1885. And he um, really had a pretty amazing career as a criminal lawyer. He defended 32 murderers and only lost one verdict while he was here. So he was um, a good lawyer to have. Ren, do you want to talk a little bit about his um, what he said during the trial, some of his fancy talk? Yeah, so... Um... So Jay Ham, um, <laughs> in his concluding remarks, I mean, and just to give you guys kind of an idea of his oratories, they said that his graceful flowing rhetoric, dramatic delivery, and wealth of historical and literary illusion kind of helped him to win this trial. And so he goes on to describe Lewis talks for hours and hours, and he puts on this huge show, but he describes Long's meeting of Humes, the son-in-law, like this. He says, a young man of serpent-like eyes, reddish hair, and a daredevil demeanor sat behind them. It was Norman Humes, and he became intimate with the family and seduced the weak-minded daughter. Long came to distrust him and learned that his wife had become infatuated with him. They carried on for months a criminal intrigue. They had a code of signals by which the guilty woman would summon her paramour to her house when her husband went out to earn her bread. So in closing, um, he, he extends one arm above his head for dramatic flair and he bellows, this is the law. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman herself. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Wow. So, I mean, I wish I could have been there to see this because this seems like it it was really providing a lot of entertainment for the whole town. What with this like clown, Jay Ham, somehow a genius lawyer and like Liberace at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, did, did Jay Ham end up winning the trial for long? What was the outcome? Yes, he did. Um, this His passionate speech and his arguments resulted in David Long's acquittal by a jury of his peers. The headlines read, David Long, not guilty. The jury returns a verdict in accordance with the law, in parentheses then, of Moses, a warning to unfaithful wives and adulterous men. I'm not a Bible expert, but I, <laughs> I was like, what? what is this law of Moses? I had to look all this up because... I was raised a heathen. So from what I understand, the law of Moses or Mosaic law is like old school Bible stuff. First five books of the Hebrew Bible were traditionally believed to have been written by Moses, although, you know, probably not. Lots of people probably wrote it. This was like the law of God, you know, like above civil law. Um, So the Ten Commandments are part of this. It's essentially there's a three books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and then the law is kind of reiterated and added to in Deuteronomy. That's right, Deuteronomy. (laughs) So this is what's invoked in the trial specifically, is Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. 
the man who lay with the woman, and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Deuteronomy is, is actually the etymology. It means second law. I, I, I think of it in my brain as dude-eronomy because <laughs> basically this whole chapter is a bunch of laws that are mostly beneficial for dudes. And specifically the section, the 22nd chapter, what we're talking about, and within that chapter, sections 13 to 30 deal with laws around family and sex, um, specifically like dishonesty and violence and sexual relations. So this is like, I don't know, to me, n the song problematic stuff here. Um, <laughs> and it made me start thinking about the separation of church and state and that I was raised to believe that we have here in America. But really, despite the First Amendment, our country was founded, you know, largely by Christians. And so much of the criminal justice system has been shaped and just full of Christian views and attitudes and things. If you think about when you're in the court, you swear on a Bible to tell the truth. In fact, it was only um, pretty recently that they created an alternative to that because they're like, well, I guess if you don't believe in God, why would you care about swearing on the Bible? To tell the truth? <laughs> so they created this affirmation thing where you affirm your testimony is the truth and um, under the pains and penalties of perjury. But let's get back to the trial. And um, Ren, do you want to talk about how the verdict went? Over? Yeah. So, you know, it's really depressing to think that, <laughs> that this verdict went over, um, you know, or that, that it happened like it did and that Long was just off because he had fully admitted to what he did. He killed two people and he ran away. Yeah, lots of evidence of that. <laughs> and he admitted to that. He he never he never tried to say anything else. So for them to not penalize him whatsoever and to use this biblical kind of law um, or, you know, tact that the pink haired man <laughs> used was pretty outrageous. And I think, you know, obviously there were people who maybe agreed with that, but there were a lot of people, thankfully, even in 1891, who did not agree with that. And there was, you know, obviously, as Colby said, this was, a, you know, national um, news. And there were a lot of people who kind of expressed their outrage that this was this was part of the law and that he had gotten off. Can I interject something real quick? I just think it's really interesting. The Seattle Daily Intelligencer had actually called it like right after the murder in December before the trial even began. Do you want to read that quote? Yeah. Yeah. So like Colby was saying, they 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 predicted what was going to happen. And, and they said um, the frightful murder of his wife and son-in-law is a case of private vengeance, meaning, yeah, this guy, we believe he was wrong. So he's he's totally fully, you know, valid in what he did. So there was a lot of like public like, yeah, we totally get it. That's that's just what we do here in America. And then there was also a lot of people that were like, wait a minute, the law says if you kill somebody, you should be penalized. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Colby. So uh, there was a couple, there's a couple really interesting quotes. I love this one that, um, quote, men who did not hesitate to inflict domestic wrong were the first to revenge it by murder. Which is pretty intense, um, you know. Yeah, I love this quote. Can I just say this one? 
It is the absurd habit of our American people to be very lenient with ugly fellows who do murder the moment they think they do well to be angry. So there was a lot of, like, criticism of it as being sort of an American phenomenon to run around with guns and solve all our problems by killing each other. And then our justice system is just like, meh. I'll just read one more and then we will talk a little bit about after. But they say the Englishman, rather than go to the scaffold, elects to be content with divorce and civil damages. But in America, we make a bloody burlesque of justice by saying that any man may safely slay his fellow if he can make a jury believe that he believed his victim um, was criminally intimate. So basically, I make you believe that it's cool and that he deserved it, like we just said. And we're or it's like your character, you know, you're an adulterer, you're a drug addict, you're this. So you deserve whatever happened to you. So what happened to David Long after he was acquitted of this murder, the series of murders? Oh, um, well, he moved to Arizona where he married a Mexican-American Actually, she was born in Mexico. He married a Mexican-born woman and had a big family, lots of kids. He lived to old age. Um, one of his daughters lived to be 96. She just died in, like, 2000. Um, so the feeble-minded daughter, Ida, I hate saying that, but that's <laughs> what they always called her. Ida Long disappeared from the records, cannot find a trace of her. And Susan Long is buried in an unmarked grave in Bayview Cemetery, and Norman Hume's body was sent to his family in Canada for burial. Um, I actually had a bunch of contact with some ancestors from Susan Long's family, um, shirt tail relatives who were doing genealogy, and they also tried to find what happened to Ida. And none of us could find out what happened to her, which is really sad and unsatisfying. But I kind of imagine that Long probably had her institutionalized. And that's where she disappears from the records. Poor Ida. Yeah. Ren, do you want to talk a little bit about, let's get into like <laughs> some modern parallels and things with this. So then I kind of just wanted to touch on to the Violence Against Women Act um, that happened in 1994. So <laughs> again, a full hundred years later before we have federal protection for women um, being abused. Um, and this, the, the act um, was actually sponsored primarily by Joe Biden in 1994. Um, and it was a huge deal. Um, there was a significant legislation to address domestic and sexual violence. And one of the greatest successes um, was that it, it put an emphasis on this coordinated community response. So it kind of made everything um, cohesive uh, within states and cities in order to respond to domestic violence and sex dating. And so it's um, sorry, sex dating, <laughs> sex and dating violence um, and sexual assault, stalking um, and law enforcement prosecutors, all of these people kind of working together to become this kind of, co there's a cohesive law between states and the federal government. Um, and it was a huge deal. And to think that that's a hundred years later, and we're talking here about Susan, you know, being domestically abused, we've got hundreds of years of people not being protective of, protected of their not being actual, you know, enforceable, solid across the board laws is just mind blowing um, to begin with. But 
Cue Johnny Cash. Delia's gone. <laughs> I know. Can we put that in? Just like 20 seconds of that. Um, so, but I mean, it gets even wilder because like, that's really cool. Yeah. 1994, we finally get it in. Hooray, victory. And then for the next, you know, couple decades, it has to be reauthorized and refunded. Right. And so it does, it gets refunded for the next couple of dec- decades. But then we get to 2018, 2019, when the government shutdown happens under old Trumpy and the act is allowed to expire. So now it's no longer there. It's no longer being funded, which, by the way, like a lot of these programs are being funded under this um, act. Um, And then when a new bill is introduced, it is killed by the Republican Senate because the new bill includes a boyfriend loophole. And that boyfriend loophole is seeking to prevent abusive partners from acquiring guns. So if you have a record of domestic abuse, you cannot get a gun anymore. And we all know that the Republicans are in the pocket of the NRA, who doesn't care who has access to guns, be it abusive partners or teenagers or BLM demonstrations um, at BLM demonstrations or in schools. Um, So they um, vote it down. And now we are here without uh, uh, an act, a Violence Against Women Act. It's not been refunded under Trump. So hooray for that. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, That's scary and sad. It's it's terribly scary and sad. And I think, you know, I guess in in what we're having conversation about history, but you know, history is not linear. You don't just get to learn the lesson and go up. You have to learn it over and over again, apparently. Yeah. I, I just, you know, there's, this just brought up so much for me with our criminal justice system. I mean, right now we're seeing, you know, it has a lot of f- flaws and faults that are so systemic and just <sighs> built in. And I feel like this is right there with it. Um, and that domestic violence, you know, really correlates with poverty and um, for both men and women. And just the way it's dealt with is so problematic. And in fact, you know, uh, encouraging a larger role for law enforcement, interestingly, has had an unintended consequences of more women being arrested instead of men, <laughs> um, which is kind of weird. And just putting victims in these weird positions of having to testify or go to jail. Um, just, I don't know. There's so many problems around it. I don't know where to begin. So, I also, I mean, it's such a large topic, but for now, um, do we want to wrap up, sum up, have final thoughts about the long trial? I mean, I think, you know, the takeaway that kind of I get from the trial is that this was, I mean, this was really a wild and wooly place to live. And um, people romanticize a lot of this period of history and the wild West, but like there, you know, people were really on their own and especially women out here in 1891, you know, you think you, you know, as the good time girls, we put on corsets and 
and we have fun with these ideas. But when it comes down to it, you know, you were one woman amongst many, many wild men. And um, you were really in a lot of danger just all the time. Um, and I, that to me is kind of the most that I take away from this is just how vulnerable uh, not only was Susan, but also Ida. Yeah, I I don't know. My, my, my big thing with this was the just how intertwined, you know, um, the the Christianity thing was with justice and 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 that sort of like fundamentalism and um, believing that there's some laws of God that are, you know, above any laws that men make and ye that to me is really heavy and problematic. Yeah. Well, and it made women even more vulnerable, right? Not only are you vulnerable because you're just around a bunch of crazy miners and loggers, <laughs> but you're vulnerable because the courts are just, you know, they're adhering to these chaotic patriarch, you know, kind of things. Right. I guess my, my thought, I don't know if it's like the most important, but it's the one I'm thinking of right now is how many people apparently heard all of these threats before all this happened and couldn't be bothered to do anything about it. Right. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. You think that, you know, someone would have been a friend. Uh, right. Someone would have, someone would have, you know, helped out Ida. Someone would have like let Susan and, her icky boyfriend know that it was time to make a run for it. Uh, right. Or why couldn't, like why that. couldn't Susan just, you know, divorce her husband and go off with this lover as like, you know, kind of gross as that is, but like. Seems like everyone would have been happier that way. Yeah. Like if they could have just like divorced, you know, <laughs> gone their separate ways. I don't know. It's Yeah. Like, why did she have to resort to trying to poison her husband? And then <laughs> that should tell you a lot about how hard it was to divorce and what she was, you know, expecting to get. I hope none of you listeners out there have to resort to poisoning anyone to get what you want. So the 24-hour DVSAS hotline is one Eight seven 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 one five one five six three. Don't be a Susan. I mean, if you if you could help it, if you've got friends out there, let them know. Run away with your lover and never look back. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right take. Right. <laughs> uh, there's no right take to this story. I don't think there's no way to like wrap it up with a nice bow and be like. Wouldn't it be great if only this? It's just too problematic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's certainly, certainly bad town. Like it's got it's got those vibes. It's it's like old timey reality TV true crime. You know, we hope you enjoyed this story. There's gonna be many more interesting, uh, scandalous, salacious stories on the way. So with that. I'm going to say good night and I love you listeners. Thank you so much, good time girls, for joining me on this episode. You're welcome. Yeah, Thanks for having thank us. Thank you.
All right. We are going to finish up this episode with our final favorite segment, Local Treasures. In this part of the show, we do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drank, or otherwise consumed recently that fills us with local pride. What is your pick, Annika? This week, mine is Blood of the Earth from The Racket. They had a $5 special on this drink for Halloween weekend. It consists of beet juice, infused vodka, which and with orange juice, and honestly, I I hate beet juice. I was not going to get it at first, <laughs> but I was like, eh, it's the $5 special. They only have it every once in a while. But mixed with the orange, it just tastes very like earthy. So it was delicious. It sounds delicious. Um, speaking of delicious, my pick for this week are the uh, pan al chocolate or chocolate croissants from Mount Bakery Cafe. I picked some up at the farmer's market and they are always just so delightful. Um, I think chocolate croissants are one of the first pastries I ever remember eating and one of the first things I ever tried when I moved to Bellingham after a recommendation from my college roommate. So they're a little bit nostalgic for me. (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, that about wraps things up. Annika, what are we learning about next week? Next week, we will be learning about some of early Bellingham's lady problems. Surprisingly enough, old-timey Bellingham was not well-equipped to to support women in prison, whether it be the ladies serving time or the ladies working for a paycheck. Or lack of paycheck. So remember to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check out our website at cityofthesubdued.com. And you can also support the City of Subdued podcast and support local radio by tuning in to KMRE at 102.3 FM every Thursday night at 10 p.m. to listen to Bad Town. Or you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And a very special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren from The Good Time Girls for being incredible Season 2 co-hosts and for their incredible research. You can find them at bellinghistory.com as well as Facebook and Instagram. We also want to thank Francisco D'Andrea for our intro and outro music, The Criminals Jazz Band. And lastly, thank you to Maria and myself for doing the editing. With that, I say to you, Bellingham, so long. A little more subdued, Maria. See you next week.